Hey guys, Jared Lopes here, host of the Dad Tired Podcast. Welcome back to A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. This is a five-week mini-series where my friend Chris Hilkin walks us through in really practical ways what it looks like to lead our family well, specifically in the area of apologetics. This has been such a fun and really, really practical, helpful series. I know you guys are loving it. I want to offer you guys a free book. I had Chris put together a list of books that would be helpful for you if you want to dive deeper. You can find that by going to dadtired.com forward slash homework, and you can see a whole list of books that Chris has recommended for you to dive deeper into this topic. But one of the books he recommended was called The Problem of God, and we want to offer that to you for free by becoming a monthly partner of this ministry. If you don't know, we are a ministry that is trying to equip men to lead their family well. We want to give guys the gospel to help them fall in love with Jesus. And as a result, we would love to see them lead their family to the gospel and help their family fall in love with Jesus. And so if you believe in that mission and you believe that the world needs more dads, more good godly dads, we would love to have you become a monthly partner with us. As a way of saying thank you for becoming a monthly partner, we would like to send you the book, The Problem of God. It's one of the top books that Chris recommended for beginners who just want to dive in a little bit deeper to the apologetics conversation. And so if you want to become a monthly partner, we would love to send you this book completely for free. You can do that by going to dadtire.com forward slash give. And when you do that, you'll see a comment section in there. Just write the problem of God in the comment section so we know exactly what book to send you. Again, go to dadtire.com forward slash give. In the comments, put the problem of God in the comment section, and we will send you that book completely for free as a way of saying thank you for partnering with us monthly to see more men equipped for the sake of the gospel. With that being said, let's dive into week four of A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. We are jumping back into our apologetics series today by asking the question, is there evidence for God based on the way that we think things are right and wrong? In the series, we've been asking the question, what is the evidence for the faith that we have? Is there reasons and are there good reasons to be a Christian, to believe that that God does exist, that the Bible is reliable, that faith in God is a reasonable endeavor? And for a lot of us who maybe grew up being convinced that to be a Christian, we had to check our brain at the door, what you're going to find, the more you dive into the subject, is while absolutely there's nothing that's so conclusive that it goes beyond a shadow of a doubt, but that there are really good reasons, like a court case. And if you walk into a court case and you're trying to prove that someone murdered someone, you could have a murder weapon, you could have DNA at the scene, you could have all the things, but you still couldn't prove conclusively beyond a shadow of a doubt that someone, that person A, was guilty of that thing because that's what forensic science is doing. When we're talking about God, that's kind of what we're doing. We're not able to test. We can't put God in a beaker or in a test tube. We can't heat him to 212 degrees and see if he boils. We can't add salt on top of a mountain and see if that lowers the boiling temperature. We can't do that. We instead, like a court case, bring all the evidence to bear. And then as rational creatures, we make the best guess with all the information. So one of the pieces of evidence that we're going to deal with today that that I believe is a good reason to believe in God's existence, is the presence in our world of objective morality. Now, morality is the things that you do that are right and wrong, good and bad, okay? So the kind of bill of rights of right and wrong for the Christian is the Ten Commandments. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Don't take the name of your Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, but keeping it holy. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. You know, all those things. That's kind of the, the core. And Jesus sums up the morality of the Christian and really everyone when he says, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of become the supreme ethic in our culture, even though they don't give it credence to being biblical. That's kind of what we say. We say, you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so that's what objective morality is, the things in our world that are right and wrong, regardless of what you think about them. It's like, think about the Holocaust, okay? So you've got Hitler, and he tries to convince everyone that the Jews are the enemy, that there are inferior races of people, that people who are mentally infirm or have special needs, who are homosexuals or black in skin color or some other person of color, that they should all be done away with because they are inferior races to his Aryan race. And at the time, even though he had momentum on his side and he had people that were listening to him and that were doing what he said, even if, objective morality says, even if Hitler was successful and he successfully brainwashed the entire world's population and exterminated everyone of an inferior race in his mind, that that would still be something that was wrong. If the Holocaust was carried out to its completion and everyone was killed and all Christians were killed and all the Jews were killed, and what he had done, even though all the world would say that what he did was okay— There's an objectivity that means there's something bigger than mankind that says those things are wrong. There's something bigger than just our social contract. There's something bigger than our evolution, if you will, that says those things are wrong. That if someone passed a law next week that beating up little kids for fun was okay, if that law passed and it now was was socially acceptable to beat your kid beyond reason, that it would still be the wrong thing to do that laws actually don't govern what's right and wrong, good and evil, that our our naturalistic upbringing, if you're an evolutionist, is not a great grounding for why we should or shouldn't do things. So objective morality says, really simply, if God exists, then we have a really good reason to believe that objective moral values and duties exist. If God exists, we have a really solid foundation for believing that things are objectively, that means regardless of your opinion or the current status of the laws, things are objectively right and wrong, good and evil. It is always necessarily wrong for you to use your strength size to rape somebody else. Always objectively wrong. It is always objectively wrong to inflict gratuitous violence on someone to say, I enjoy the beating of other people, so I will do that. And that's just, that is objectively wrong wrong. And if the the law was stated differently, or you went to a culture where everyone liked to do that, it would still be wrong. And its wrongness is bigger than that group's agreed upon morality. And it's, and it's bigger than what the law states. There is something that is just always wrong about doing those things. So in God, we have a really good reason to believe on the basis of objective morality that there's a foundation for it. When we say foundation, what do we mean? Well, I think sometimes people confuse this. The argument is not that a case can't be made for why we, as quote-unquote evolved primates, would want to be kind to one another. That's not, the, that's not the argument. People sometimes go, well, if you look at the way that monkeys interact, you look at the way that giraffes interact, they tend to be kind to each other because it's better for their species and to pass on their genes. And so what is right and wrong, good and evil is what is good is what helps us pass on our genes and what's good for our group of primates. And what's bad is what inflicts harm on that group or what doesn't promote the survival of our species. And uh, we're going to use some big words right here, but really that whole argument that people tend to make is not really the, the question. The question isn't, what in our world is right and wrong? 
I think, again, the Bible would say that that's written on our hearts. The law of God is written on our hearts. Social scientists would say it's the social contract we've all come to. Someone who is a culturalist might say, well, that's the law that our culture has agreed upon. But we're not asking the question, what things are good and what things are bad? We're not saying, God, if we don't have God, we won't know what's right and wrong. That's not what the Christian says at all. The apologist does not say that God is necessary to know what is right and wrong. And you and I both know, we both know Christians that follow Jesus, or at least claim to follow Jesus, who can be quite despicable. We also all know atheists who seem to be, for all intents and purposes, doing the whole Christian thing better than the Christians are. They are kind to others. They visit people when they're in jail and they help people when they're sick and they're, they're kind and generous with their money. So the argument is not, without God, everyone would be an immoral, depraved group of despicable rejects. That's not the argument. The argument isn't, we need God to know that things are right and wrong. We can make a lot of reasons and a lot of arguments why social contract theory or evolution has brought upon why the things that are right and wrong in our culture. The question is about the foundation of why those things exist in the first place. It's an argument of ontology, not epistemology. Epistemology says what things are right, what things are wrong, and why do we think those things are right and wrong in our culture? That's epistemology. The question of objective morality asks the question of ontology, which means the argument for God's existence is why you and I, when we observe what's right and wrong, ought to follow those things. What is the foundation behind why? So the argument could be made, well, the reason that we don't steal from people or the reason that we don't participate in rape or things like this is because it's bad for our species and we want to promote the survival of our species. And all. Great. But if I'm just a bag of stardust that grew up and I'm evolved from space dust and now I'm all of a sudden some sentient being, why, how does that possibly reach that conclusion? It sounds like this. Well, you used to be nothing. A senseless, brainless, unguided process brought you to a point where now you're able to know what's right and wrong. Therefore, you should do what's right and wrong. See, you made a massive leap. You derived an ought from an is. An is is that we all kind of agree on what's right and wrong, but what we don't agree on is why ought I do that? I might know in my heart that it's wrong for me to steal, but why should I listen to that? And why should you possibly ever put me in jail if I just go against what my space dust brain decided to do? So the, the argument is, what's the foundation for why we ought to obey those things? Why do they exist in the first place? And with God, we have a solid foundation. The solid foundation that we're given in scripture is that the character of God, the nature and the character of God is what is good. Those things that go against God's nature and character is that which is wrong, that which is bad, that which is evil, right? So you might have heard someone say before, right? Like, Killing is wrong. Well, why is killing wrong? Well, killing is wrong, A, because God says it is in Scripture. Great. But why is killing wrong in Scripture? Because God, John 14, 6, is a God of life. That he is the author and creator and sustainer of life. And we, as his image bearers, our responsibility, the reason we were made, is to emulate who God is. So what is sin? Sin is when we know what we were made for and we go against it, right? Let's say you have a remote control for your TV, but it doesn't change the channel. 
you would say that is a bad remote control. Now, you're not going to assign a moral value to it because it's just broken, but let's say it did have sentience and its one job was to control the TV and it didn't do so. We would say that is a sinful remote control if it had sentience, if it was able to understand what is right and wrong. And we said, okay, you exist for one reason. You were created for this, to change the channel, and it didn't do it. We would go, oh, that's a bad remote control. That is a wrong remote control. That is a sinful remote control. In the same way, and again, you got to help me with the analogy a little bit. We were created, the book of Isaiah tells us, to glorify God. In Genesis chapter 2, it says we are the image bearers of God, which means our job, we are kind of like walking, talking representations of who God is. So if the remote control can, with sentience, be called wrong if it fails to do what it was made for, then we, in the same way, if we were made to be an image bearer and to demonstrate what God is like and to bring him glory, when we fail to do that, we then are in sin. So what is objective morality to the Christian? It's anytime I, as an image bearer, fail to properly bear the image of Jesus. Anytime I, as a representative of God, misrepresent him. When I say, when God says, you know what, I'm going to make you in my image to glorify me. And I, as a human say, I don't think so. Instead, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to glorify me we'd be convinced that a remote control that said, I know you made me to change channels, but I really feel like scooping yogurt. We would go, well, that remote control then is a bad one. That remote control isn't doing what it was made for. And in God's economy, that is considered sin. So our foundation for what is right and wrong is that which is in alignment with God's character and then our outliving of what that is and following him as image bearers is what is good. When we act in accordance with why we were made and we properly represent God, we are doing good. We are living according to what he wants for us. When we, in contrast, say, I know what I was made for. I know what your law says. I know what it means to glorify you. I know what it means to be obedient to you, but I don't want to do it. Those things are objectively wrong. And our foundation for it is the character of God. So why is rape wrong? Because God is a God of liberty. He's a God of freedom. He's a God of a free will. He's a God of all these things. And when you rape someone, you take away their liberty. You take away their autonomy. You take away their free will. You take, you inflict pain on them. And our God is not a God who sits there and gratuitously inflicts pain on people for no reason. He's not a God who, who rips apart their liberty. He's not a God who believes it's appropriate to take your power and to leverage it for your own satisfaction, right? This is what Philippians 2 says. God was the most powerful being on in the universe. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing. So what it means to be like God is to take the power we've been given, take the, the money and the power and the fame or the supposed talents that we have and to leverage them to love people, that's what Jesus did, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when we go, well, me thinking that I'm God, I'm going to leverage it. I'm going to hurt people. I'm going to inflict myself. I'm going to inflict my will on people. We are not doing what our savior did. We are doing the opposite that's why those things are wrong. So why is rape wrong? It's not just wrong because the Bible condemns it. It's not just wrong because someone gets hurt in the process. And those are great reasons for it to be wrong. It's wrong because it misrepresents what we were made to be. 
So we have a solid foundation for anything that is right and wrong. If it exemplifies the character of God and why we were created, it is good. If it does not, if we improperly bear the image of God or we go against the reason we were made, it is bad. That's a solid foundation. And you can siphon anything that a human being can do that has moral value into one of those categories based on that foundation objectively. I know what's right and wrong. I know that this is good. I know that this is bad. I know that this is right. I know that this is wrong. I know that this is good. I know this is evil. And I run it through the same filter. Is it like God? Is it properly administering my responsibility as an image bearer right now or not? So when I steal, I serve a God of generosity. I serve a God of fairness and a God of justice. And when I steal, I am saying, I bear the image of a God who is unjust, who steals, and who is greedy. So I have improperly borne the image of God. So we have a solid foundation for objective moral values and duties. We know those things by the Bible, but it also says in the Old Testament that God writes his law on our hearts. So we're not making the argument that only Christians know what is right and wrong, or that an atheist couldn't possibly know what is right and wrong. No, that it's written on the hearts of all mankind, what is right and what is wrong. So the counter argument then is, if God exists, this is the first part, we have a solid foundation for objective moral values and duties. It's bound in the character of God. It is revealed to us through scripture and it's written on our hearts. That is a solid foundation by which I can look at any morally culpable category and tell you if it's right or wrong. The argument, the second part is, if God doesn't exist, we don't have a comparably solid foundation for objective moral values. Without God, we have to come up with another reason why things are objectively right and objectively wrong, or we can, as many atheists are now in the habit of doing, or Steven Pinker, people like that, who say, no, 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 there is no objective moral values and duties. There, things aren't objectively wrong. Now, the majority of people on our planet Earth who are thinking people are going to say, there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong, objectively. You've got a very small group of people who, because they understand that needs to be rooted in something, have just said, you know what, maybe there is no such thing as truly right and wrong. Maybe everything is up to the individual, which means that rape being wrong, gratuitous violence being wrong, theft being wrong, is really nothing more than stating an opinion. Like, the sky is beautiful today, or I like the taste of sushi, that all moral value statements are really just opinions. The majority of people, though, not willing to go there because we see how slippery that slope can get right away, are willing to say, no, I think things are truly, objectively, right and wrong. And that if someone hurts someone else, they should be held responsible for doing so. To which then, the argument comes in for the Christian to look at the non-Christian or the non-believer and say, okay, then I want you to ground what you're saying objectively in a solid foundation that holds true for all people. What is the foundation for why mankind ought to live up to the standard of objective morality that we see? Why shouldn't men rape? Why shouldn't we steal? Why shouldn't we murder? Why shouldn't we have affairs? Why shouldn't we do that? Now, there's a couple of different very common responses for the non-Christian. And the first one is to say, well, Morality is a social contract. It's a social construct. And it's so ingrained in us 
that we have voted on these things and that it's, it's become part of our DNA. And so that's why things feel objectively right and wrong, but they're not objectively right and wrong. It's just that we're so used to seeing these things as this way that, that now we've kind of developed this sense in our hearts that these things are right and wrong. And that's what we perceive to be objectively moral, right and wrong. So they are objectively moral, right and wrong, but it, we don't need a foundation outside of that. It's just a social construct. Morality is a social construct and it's part of the social contract and we've all agreed to it. And so that's what makes it. The problem with that is you're not really asking the question of moral ontology. You're not asking, that's great, but why would I, as a bag of space dust who has evolved as a result of a random process, I don't have any idea of justice or fairness is all an illusion. And if my brain is truly just part of this evolved process You can look at me as a primate, but before that I was any number of other far less intelligible, far less moral creatures, right? Like we say moral creatures, like if you ever see a great white shark mating, it's forcible copulation. It is the closest thing to rape you're ever going to see. And it's, it's all over the animal kingdom, right? We have bugs that murder their, their mates and then plant their, plant their seed in the dead body of the mate that they just murdered, right? And in, in the human kingdom, we would put that person in a jail cell for a long time, or we would give them a death sentence. But in the animal kingdom, we take videos of it and we put it on National Geographic and we call it science. Why? Because we see a difference between mankind and animals, but outside of God, you don't have a great reason why all of a sudden in one generation of animals to all of a sudden go, okay, now these people need to obey a moral code and these people don't. You're, you're still appealing to a higher power, which is even if we all of a sudden were able to understand my actions hurt people, that doesn't really create a moral culpability that I shouldn't hurt people. It just means now I know that they're being hurt. So then jump into an ought, which is now that I know that people get hurt and I'm able to experience pain and, and understand it myself, therefore... I'm not going to do this anymore. In fact, if I see you doing it over there, I'm going to put you in jail. That's called deriving an ought from an is, and it's a logical fallacy. What we've done is we've stated what is, that it's not good to hurt people, that it makes them cry, that they're not going to like it. But then to hold all humans responsible to that is, again, to appeal to some kind of higher code. We're not really acting like evolved primates at that point. We're acting like transcendent moral guides that are able to pronounce sentences on one another. And, but we're doing it all as evolved amoebas that the only reason we think things are right and wrong is because it hurts or doesn't hurt things. But we haven't really said why not hurting someone is a good thing other than, well, I don't want them to hurt me, so I'm not going to hurt them. But you've got a lot of really strange groups of people on planet earth. And you've got a lot of really weird reasons why that doesn't hold up. Let me give you an example. Let's say you look at the practice of sati in foreign countries where it was common and is common in some places still that if a husband dies so that he can have his wife in the afterlife, she is burned on the funeral pyre with him. The living woman is set on the funeral pyre along with sometimes possessions, even children, and they're set on fire so that they can join the man in the afterlife. Now you might go, oh wow, that's such an interesting cultural thing to do. And now if I told you, okay, there's a button in front of you and you can push it and you can stop that practice altogether, would you push that button? The problem is, is if you push the button, you are stating that our way of seeing things and doing things and to resist that pain that's felt on them is a good thing. And so I would push the button. I would stop that. 
The problem is if you don't stop it, you need to have a really good reason. And you might be saying, well, that's what their cultures agreed upon is appropriate. They've voted that that's okay. And it's part of their religious experience. So who am I to say that that's right? Or if that's wrong, if we went to a foreign country, if you and I went to a foreign country and let's say you brought your spouse or you brought one of your kids and the foreign tribe that was there grabbed your kids and started boiling them in oil and you protest and you said, you can't do that. That's a really difficult argument to make at that point because their evolution has brought them to a point where they think it's okay to boil people in oil. They might know that that's painful for that person. They just don't care. They might in their social contract and their social structure has made that something that isn't morally reprehensible. So you would have a really hard time trying to describe to them why they shouldn't boil your child, except insofar as to say, I don't like that you do that. Well, that's just an opinion. And what if they think in their culture, their hunger, if they're going to eat your child, is actually superior to whether or not it hurts your feelings? You can make a really good case that as far as like surviving and passing on genes that and the religious experience that they're having, that they go, I don't think this is wrong. I think if you, we've got a rule in our land that if you walk into our sacred place, even if you don't know it, and we are able to capture you and we can boil you and we can eat you and you should just be okay with it. No one in their right mind is going to go, oh man, well, they really pulled a fast one on me, right? Aren't you, you're going to fight with all of your might. You're going to push back as hard as you can. And you might go, no, you don't get it. Cause in my culture, but your culture doesn't work there. You're in their culture. Now, on Christianity, I've got a great foundation. No matter who you are or where you are, there is a God who oversees all things. He is the great high judge. He is the moral status. He is what is perfect. So no matter where I am, I can look at that and I can go, no, the Bible makes it very clear. Thou shalt not murder. You cannot inflict your will on somebody else in that kind of way. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. And I can appeal to the authority of God and his goodness and his character on why that is always objectively wrong. If you think it's wrong because of our, the way that we've evolved. Well, what happens if you rewound the clock of human evolution and we evolved in such a way that now rape was okay, it's very likely that could be the case. That we could live in a world right now where rape is okay or gratuitous violence is okay or stealing from people is okay. And you would have to just say, well, I, I guess there could be possible worlds in which all those things were permissible, but ours is one that isn't. And if you're comfortable with that, then so be it. But most people aren't. Most people say, no, I think that would always be wrong, regardless of how we vote or what we think. And again, with the social contract thing, if you go to another culture that's different than yours, you have to be completely subservient to their way of doing things. And you wouldn't have much protest outside of, I don't like what you're doing, or American culture is better, but you wouldn't have a grounding for it. You go, well, in America, we, we think what's good is what people like, and what's wrong is what people don't like, Okay. Well, when you walk over to a shame honor culture that's highly religious and what they think is right is what brings you honor and what's wrong is what brings you shame. And if you do something wrong to kill yourself is a good thing, we might go, no, 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 that's not right. But you just have two competing cultures at that point and you don't have any objective third party that says this is how you weigh on these things. On on 9-11, Muhammad Otto and a couple other people flew planes into the World Trade Centers and killed thousands and thousands of people. We sit there and we go, that is a morally reprehensible action. But when you talk to their families about who the heroes and the villains are, when you, when you talk to someone who lives in New York, who was the hero of that day, we might say the firefighters, the people who put themselves in harm's way to save other people. But all of that language is bathed in American ideals of what is good and what is bad and Judeo-Christian mindsets, which America is based in, about the self-sacrifice and courage and laying down of your life. 
Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend, says Jesus. So we see that the heroes are the firefighters. They're the first responders. They're the nurses in the hospitals. They're the people who went up the towers to go save more people. And who were the villains? Who were the people, who were the villains of that day? It's those who tried to inflict evil on America. The problem with that is if you're strictly socially speaking, that that's where we get morality from. If you go to their homes of the people who flew the planes into the World Trade Centers and you said, who are the heroes of today? You can ask, well, Osama bin Laden made a public declaration. Who were the heroes of 9-11? He would say those who sacrificed their bodies to kill as many Americans as possible. Those were the heroes of 9-11. And who were the villains? The ones who tried to stop it. Americans themselves, the civilians, the ones who were killed in those, in those attacks. Those were the villains. And so on that day, the person who has that mindset would say, that was great success. And we would say that was a great tragedy. Now, if you two get in the ring together and you just have an argument without a transcendent moral agent that's able to make rulings on that, you're just two cultures screaming at each other, stomping your feet, saying, that hurt my feelings. That was not okay. Where they can go, well, that's your understanding of morality. Your understanding is what hurts is bad and what helps is good. And to inflict the least amount of pain on the least amount of people. Well, great, but our culture says something different. That doesn't matter how much pain you inflict, if you do what is honorable and what is pleasing to Allah, then that is what is appropriate. And outside of just thinking that Americans are better or that our culture is superior, you don't have a really firm moral ground to stand on. But on Christianity, we do. We've got a reason why we can stand in that ring and say the events of 9-11 were heinous. They were wrong. They were independently, transcendently, objectively evil. Why? Because our God is a God of life. God alone can give and take away life. He is the great life giver, and therefore he is in charge of all things. So the argument for objective moral values and duties is to say, if we are willing to agree that there are certain things in our world that are objectively wrong, regardless of how you vote for it, regardless of how you evolved, or and if we would have evolved some different way, they would still be wrong. And if Hitler had conquered the earth and said that Semitism was the way of the future, that to practice racism is still objectively wrong, regardless of who's in charge. This is the argument. The argument is not of what is, but what we ought to do, and is there a good foundation for what we ought to do? Notice we're not saying that only Christians are good people and that all atheists don't know what is right and wrong. That's not the case at all. The Bible says it's written on our hearts that we that all mankind knows to some level what is right and what is wrong. And while we might know the math, right, it's, it's, there's this argument where we might all know that two plus two equals four. It doesn't mean we all agree with it. it. doesn't mean that we all do it. it. doesn't mean that there's cultures where because of brainwashing, they've said that two plus two equals five. The problem is when you pull people out of their cultures and they're able to reset the law becomes louder than the culture. And they go back to saying, we should do unto others as we would have do unto ourselves. And if we're just evolved monkeys, and if we are just space dust that's grown up over time and chance, and if we are just a random collection of molecules, then even the way that we evolved, we haven't evolved to be able to know right. We haven't evolved to know truth. We've evolved to survive. So if you're an atheist and you think that all we are is evolved primates and that 
evolution is to pass on the genes of our species and it's to procreate, then we really shouldn't trust. This is Darwin's doubt. Darwin's doubt was, he said, everything that I'm saying to you right now is a result of being an evolved primate whose primary motivation is passing on my genes and not getting eaten. It is not to arrive at truth. So I don't even know if I should trust my faculties. I don't know if I should trust my brain that's telling me what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, what is true, because my brain doesn't exist. My evolutionary process doesn't bring me to truth. It brings me to survival. But on Christianity, through God and through his objective moral character and standard, we have a really good foundation for why wrong things are wrong, good things are good, bad things are bad, and evil things are evil. Without God, you need to come up with a system by which we can say, I know what is right and wrong always. I can tell you what is right and wrong, and I can explain to you why people should be held morally responsible outside of the simple things we talked about, cultural constructs, evolutionary processes, just a simple contract of, of evolved primates. Those all might be able to tell you why certain things are right and wrong, but not why we ought to obey those things or, or what transcendent reason we have for doing those things or why we can't then, if all we are are, are bits of DNA dancing to the music of our genes, to just say, oh, I don't feel like doing that. Or to kill someone and go, well, my DNA told me to. I'm predisposed to murder. Therefore, you really can't put me on trial. But with God, we can With God, we know that he gives people a free will, that he has put the law on their hearts. The Bible has revealed the meaning of that law, that that we exist to glorify him, that what is wrong is what goes against his character and his nature, and that all people will come one day and face the great moral judge, and he will make, whether through the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive sins or apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, his justice will be done. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know that even though we are screwed up moral agents, that we do wrong things all the time, that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that the punishment of all my moral sins was laid upon Jesus, and that makes me want to live closer and walk and step with who I was created to be, which is part of God's character. But for those of us who say, no, you know what? I am responsible for all the moral things that I've done, and I'm going to pay the price and the punishment for my sins myself— that God, the great moral judge, no one gets away with anything. And on atheism, we know without God that there are people who are going to spend their whole lives raping and murdering and pillaging and the Pol Pots and the Maos and the, the Stalins and the Hitlers of this world can get away with it. But doesn't that sit so wrong in our soul? See, even that, we still have a foundation there that says everything that you do will come under judgment, that nothing wrong that someone has done, no great genocide will go unpunished. And there's no one who turns to Jesus and follows him will not be rewarded with love. Who genuinely has a turn of heart and surrenders life to Jesus, will he not respond and say, I forgive you. That's the power of the Christian message. So if God exists, we have a solid foundation for knowing what is right and wrong, good and evil. It's based in the character of God and our outliving of what it means to follow him as image bearers. Without God, we have to come up with some different foundation for why people ought to abide by this moral code, what this moral code is comprised of, and why on atheism, anyone should follow the social contract that we've created, the social constructs and and contracts and evolved primate species should all live in agreement with this rather than to all do our own thing and have it be okay. 
This is the moral argument from objective values and duties of why God exists. 